This is an ABC podcast. If it hasn't already slipped your mind, we did a program recently on the new science of forgetting. Why forgetting shouldn't just be seen as a failure of memory. It's actually a mechanism for driving us forward. If you missed it, you can always search out the podcast. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Anyway, that episode prompted a tweet from longtime Future Tense listener Aaron Davis in Melbourne, who wrote, I enjoyed the discussion of forgetting. It had me thinking about forgetting associated with technology. When it comes to big data, the focus is often on remembering everything. I wonder, what is the place for forgetting in this situation? I was particularly left thinking about the work of Kate Eichhorn and how we no longer allow children what Eric Erickson called a psychosocial moratorium. And thank you, Aaron, because your tweet sparked our curiosity. Now, Eric Erickson, the German-American psychologist, died in 1994, so the chances of getting him on the program without a Ouija board were always going to be limited. But we did manage to get in touch with your other suggestion. It's Kate Eichhorn, and I'm the chair and associate professor of the Culture and Media Studies program at the New School. And Dr Eichhorn is the author of numerous works about youth and digital culture, including The End of Forgetting, Growing Up with Social Media. Kate Eichhorn. I think that for me, when I started thinking about this book, I had two kids who were tweens or early teens at the time, And I started to think about how profoundly different their lives are than my own life. I grew up in the 70s and 80s. And so by the time I went to college, you know, I could be very selective about what I was going to carry forward into my adult years. And it was a few photographs. Maybe I kept in touch with a few people. But other than that, it was like a clean break with the past. And I was very much the person who was curating the memories that I was carrying forward and abandoning. For my kids and for anyone who's a member of Gen Z or even a younger millennial, they have a profoundly different experience of growing up. So when they leave home and they go off to university, they aren't just bringing with them all the photos that are on their phone and their different digital devices. They have a very kind of long and complex digital footprint online. And they're also just connected to people who they might have met when they were in first or second grade. So I started to think about those differences and the consequences of that. And particularly, I started to think about what does that mean for people's social identity development and for people's ability to reimagine who they are, to try on new identities, to experience new things, and even perhaps to establish new political positions or perspectives. So is there a sense, not just that we're, we're kind of trapped by our memories, that you know, what we've done in the past is there for everyone to see, but as you say, this idea of carrying ourselves forward, of, of being able to have some sort of creative control over who we are and who we want to be in the future. Absolutely. Well, I think that people can still reinvent themselves and people do reinvent themselves online. There's also a lot of baggage that gets carried forward. So forgetting isn't entirely over. We still forget. But I do think it's fair to say that our ability to control what is forgotten and what is remembered has been diminished and that that has consequences. And it's also the case that forgetting is consistently seen as something that has a function. It 
facilitates not only social identity development and helps us cope with traumas, but it's also something that's really important to making space to learn new things. And that's an important point, isn't it? Because reimagining who we are is not necessarily about deception. It, it can be about growth, the growth of a person's personality or say, you know, to give an example, like somebody who is LGBTQ, a chance for them to actually experiment and discover who they are. Absolutely. Because in the past, you would move away, have a new friend group, you could come out and people from the small community that you might have been from would never know. There was a large space in which you could come out without consequences. In the present, that is more difficult. So while in some ways, it's obvious that digital cultures and platforms have created incredible opportunities for LGBTQ youth to connect with people outside their own geography. It also has created new problems and challenges. Certainly executing a radical break with the past is much more difficult. In a sense, what is important about forgetting is that it's associated with freedom, the freedom to reimagine who you are and to also reimagine who your primary relationships are with. And I think this has psychological consequences, it has social consequences, but it also has, I think, very profound political consequences. And I'll give you an example. In the United States, unlike Australia or Canada, where I'm originally from and many other countries, the college admissions process is very complicated. And so they're not just looking at test scores or your grades in high school. They're looking at a variety of things, college essays and volunteer work sports, but they're also college admissions officers in the United States will often do a search, social media search. And if they find something that they consider inappropriate or offensive, there's a growing trend where those students are not admitted to college. Interestingly, we know in the US that people who go to college tend to become sort of move towards the left and away from the right. And yet what we are seeing are a certain number of students, maybe they come from a more conservative state, actually being filtered out of more progressive colleges based on things they might have tweeted or posted on Facebook when they were quite young, could be 13, 14, 15 years old. And so as much as I don't necessarily want those students in my own classroom, I also recognize why it's so important to not necessarily assume that they're never going to change, they're never going to grow, and they're never going to change their political position. So I think on some level, there's actually a calcification of the kind of polarized politics that we see emerging already. Given the way the digital world is, given the, this is all about data, I mean, given, given the way in which we use data, we gather data, we store data, is this situation likely to change? Is it possible that it could change in the future? That is a really difficult question. I would like to say yes, but I don't have an answer to how we're going to do that because, you know, digital forgetting is probably only going to happen if we find a way to monetize forgetting in the way that we've already monetized remembering. But tech companies have very little motivation or incentive to do this because what they are invested in is having people produce data 24-7. And, and that's also why children and youth are a big part of this story. They have a lot of free time. They have an incredible desire to be connected 
to their peers socially. So they're actually an incredibly useful market to tap into. If you think in the past, for the past you know, 100 years or so, in most countries, we've had child labor laws that prevent companies from exploiting this particular part of the labor market. But with social media, suddenly people who you couldn't exploit as workers became a huge part of the people who are producing content for digital platforms. And we're talking with Kate Eichhorn, an Associate Professor of Culture and Media Studies and author of the book, The End of Forgetting. Kate Eichhorn, you and I worry about these things, think about these things. Do you think many young people worry about the consequences? I think that they didn't, but I have actually seen a huge shift. Both adults and youth are much more aware of the fact that their privacy is compromised when they're online. As a college professor, I spent a lot of time with 18 to 22-year-olds. I would say that over the last couple of years, the students who are arriving in my classes are increasingly cynical about big tech and very aware and a bit paranoid about what those companies are doing with their data. So whether or not that brings about a massive change in how people use these platforms is another question. But I do think that there is, post the Cambridge Analytica scandal, larger public awareness of the potential dangers. It is easy, isn't it, to forget how recent the digital world really is. You know, it it seems like it's always been with us. It certainly does uh, for me. Is what you're talking about a sign that we are still experimenting, that we're still trying to find our feet and, and where we have power and where we don't within this world? I would like to think that there's still things that we're imagining and and working out. But one of the things that is important to remember, if we go back, I've been researching online communities uh, since 1994, 1995. And early on, it was really very much a space of possibility and imagination. It was a space where, you know, you probably weren't using your own name. There were no photographs. There wasn't a lot of identity verification. People were very much in a space of possibility. And uh, it was a bit of a Wild West, but it was also a kind of radical and, and progressive space in many ways. As it has evolved, it's become more commodified. And I think that when we think about the relationship between big tech and profit, it's really hard to imagine regular folks reclaiming a space for themselves. It's very, very difficult to do. Just things like search engines, you know, some people try to use search engines that are not Google, but it's just almost impossible for those tools to be functional because everything online relies on the number of users, right? If there are many users, the technology is better. And so it's very difficult to bring about massive change in this sort of particular tech economy. So are we past that point? Have we passed that point where we have some control and where the system starts to have all control and starts to call the shots? I don't want to be technologically deterministic. I think there's always spaces of resistance, right? In the same way, if you're working in a big corporation, well, you can decide to take an extra long bathroom break or coffee break, you know, you can uh, decide to linger a bit. There's always ways that you can take back time and space. But Do I think that we can completely take apart and rebuild online communities in a way that is more equitable, that is less driven by profit, 
I think we're probably beyond that point. And so much like the world itself, we're just looking for little pockets of resistance, places where there's still enough flexibility to imagine those spaces in a different way. And, and there's lots of people who are doing that, but I don't think it can be rebuilt and reclaimed as the utopian space that people might have imagined building in 1994 or 1996. I think that very quickly, you know, over a 25, 30 year period, we've gone from watching something that seemed like a potential tool to reimagine how we lived in the world to something that's just become another problem, like big pharma, for example. It's something that you might push up against, but it seems very difficult to reimagine it from the ground up. Well, Kate Eichhorn, thank you very much for joining us on Future Tense. Thanks for the invitation. New ideas, new approaches, new technologies. That's Future Tense. As we grapple with the conundrum Dr Eichhorn just described, one suggestion that's come forward is to try and force a sense of ethics onto those who create the platforms and technologies we use in our everyday lives. The idea is to give technologists a Hippocratic oath, similar to that used in the medical field. Now, Deakin University researcher Kate Mannell has been part of a team examining whether or not the idea has merit, and we'll come to her conclusions in just a moment. But first, let's hear from British scientist Hannah Fry. I trained as a mathematician. It was all very theoretical. You know, you're looking at sort of particles in a box or like heat moving along a wire, that kind of thing. And there's no ethics involved in any of that. You don't have to worry about privacy concerns or, you know, long-term repercussions or sort of, you know, consequences spinning out of control in any of those systems. And there's just so many people now who work as computer scientists, who work as data engineers, who have that sort of background in training, who just have never had to think of these questions and are suddenly switching from looking at particles in a box to looking at people in a crowd. And I think unless you are at every possible stage, you have in your mind the potential repercussions of your work. There's just lots of evidence, really, that it just doesn't occur to people that this is stuff that we should be thinking about. And I think that a lot of the issues that have happened in the world, really, over the last decade of the sort of overreach of data and the overreach of algorithms, I'm thinking about lots of the stuff that's happened with social media, lots of stuff that's happened in courtrooms, lots of algorithms gone bad, really, has been because we don't have something like a Hippocratic Oath, where day one, you have to sit down and say, I promise to think through the repercussions of what I'm doing and I promise to use the skills that I gain to do no harm, really. It's not a silver bullet, obviously, but I think it would be a a useful extra process. So that was British mathematician Hannah Fry speaking to us on the programme last year. Kate, welcome to the show. Um, She's not the only person, is she, who's put forward this idea of a Hippocratic Oath for data scientists? No, that's right. So myself and some colleagues at Monash and UTS have looked into these proposals and we realised that around sort of 2018, 2019, especially in the wake of the Cambridge Analytica scandal with Facebook, 
there was kind of a, a real wave of these proposals for a Hippocratic Oath for data science for technologists more broadly. And these were coming both from grassroots organisations, practitioners, academics, but also from some quite senior leaders and officials. So we have people like senior executives from Microsoft, senior officials in the EU, the chief data scientist under President Obama. There were a lot of very influential people who were taking this proposal very seriously. So it has been made as a, as a very serious proposal to some of the issues like the ones that we saw in the Cambridge Analytica scandal. It's very easy to see why people would think this is a good idea. Before we get on to your research and what you found, when was a Hippocratic Oath introduced into the medical profession? Can you tell us that? And, and how effective has it been? Yeah, so the oath has a very long history. It has its roots in ancient Greece, the writings of Hippocrates, who first proposed this idea of an oath for medical students. And it has then come in and out of favour over time since then. It's worth noting, I think, off the bat that there isn't just one Hippocratic oath. There have been many different versions of the Hippocratic oath. So these different Iterations have been developed across history that have reflected the different concerns of varying historical contexts. So the original oath, for example, prohibits things like abortion and assisted suicide, which are obviously now legal in a lot of contexts and jurisdictions. There's other things in the original oath that we might find to be quite strange, things around not having sex with the patient's slaves or the fact that the oath was sworn to gods and obviously none of these things are in kind of modern iterations of the oath. So one thing that's worth noting is that while the idea of a Hippocratic oath has appeal because it seems to evoke a kind of timeless moral framework that has endured since antiquity and that might provide us with a kind of moral compass in our complex modern times, it's actually always been very historically specific and contingent and has reflected the kind of concerns of the day. Okay, so getting on to the findings from the research that you and your colleagues have done, would, in your opinion, would a similar approach work in the field of data science? I think it's important to note that these proposals do have value. We're not saying that they don't have any value. They reflect a really important moment where this industry is trying to grapple with how to imbue its practitioners with a, with a sense of their moral responsibilities and their responsibilities to society and awareness of the harms that can be associated with their work, there is value in having those kinds of conversations and an oath might be part of increasing awareness among the industry of these kinds of issues. But it's also important to consider the limitations of this kind of model and even perhaps the counterproductive outcomes that might occur or the kind of unintended consequences. So to give one example, a Hippocratic oath is a very individualized model of responsibility. It's about an individual person's ethical responsibility. And, and that is important, individual responsibility. The kinds of problems that have led to calls for Hippocratic oaths are not just about individual bad actors, they're also about more systemic kinds of issues. So for example, if we think about the Cambridge Analytica scandal, in its framing of that event, Facebook put a lot of emphasis on rogue actors the fact that there had been bad actors who had broken their trust and, you know, used this personal data in ways that they hadn't intended or, or had wanted to happen. 
And that is true. There were individual bad actors in that case. But there is also the fact that Facebook built a massive system for the collection and use of personal data and has had very loose provisions around personal consent for the use of that data and also very loose policies around data sharing with third parties. So the point here is that oaths are about individual responsibility. So they're going to have a limited capacity to address some of these more systemic issues like company business models and policies that are also contributing to these problems. And they could even maybe serve as a mechanism for companies to devolve responsibility for their actions onto individual employees. So there's a systematic problem with the way in which data is misused within our society. From your research, you also indicate the problems around knowing when there's a misuse of data. That's not always clear in a situation, is it? Yeah, that's right. So one of the key principles that's in the Hippocratic Oath is this idea of doing no harm. If there is a sort of central ethical idea in the medical oath, it's this idea of avoiding harm. But that is actually quite a difficult thing to apply in the context of data science for a range of reasons. It's difficult because it's a very broad principle and how do you apply that to practice? I think all of us would say that we try to live by the principle of not doing harm, but we all do harm in our everyday life in lots of different ways because it's very complex to apply in practice. In the specific context of data science and the technology industry, there are some particular factors that make it even harder to know when a harm is occurring. So for example, on the side of the user, we're so alienated from our data, we don't know who has it or who is using it or what they're using it for or how it's been aggregated with other data sets. We often talk about these as being black boxed systems. We can't really see inside them. And so it's very hard for individuals to know if they have been harmed in some way. If you compare that to a medical context, it's much easier for you to know if something has been done to you without your consent or, you know, if the wrong leg has been amputated, it's very obvious. There's also a kind of second part to this problem of identifying harms, which is that it's also difficult for practitioners to identify harms too. Part of this is just the complexity of the processes, especially if we think about things like automation and open data sharing platforms. It's hard to know where data is going and how it's being used. But there's also this problem that harms need to be known in order to be avoided. And this is a data science is a kind of profession in a field that's only just coming to understand its social responsibilities and the kinds of harms that can occur. So we've seen, for example, a real push to include ethics courses and training in computer science. And I think that's one example where we see that this is only at the very early stages of this industry starting to really grapple with and understand the kinds of harms that might occur. And so until there is a better understanding of the harms that can occur, taking an oath of no harm is going to really have quite limited value. You mentioned automation there, and it occurs to me that trying to enforce some sort of idea of personal responsibility, which is what this is really about, isn't it, is going to be very difficult when you've got systems that are automated and when you've got AI involved in this whole process. Yeah, well, that's right. Trying to trace it back to an individual practitioner who could be held accountable is going to be challenging when you have these more automated processes, machine learning, algorithms, writing algorithms, um, which make this model of individual responsibility even harder to apply in this kind of context. Now, you've also made the point that, of course, with the Hippocratic Oath in the medical field, it doesn't always work 
I mean, we know that there are breaches all the time, don't we? Yeah, there is a lot of harm that still occurs in medicine, both historically, there's been a long history of harmful practices because medical practitioners weren't aware of the harms that were involved in really common kinds of treatments. But even more recently, we see issues of medical malpractice all the time. One of the kinds of key differences here in a medical context as compared to a data science or technology context is that when those breaches occur in a medical context, there is a very stringent and rigorous system of regulation that produces consequences for the person who has acted unethically. And we don't really have an equivalent to that yet in the context of data science and technology. Because in the medical world, there are centralised bodies, you know, there are centralised authorities who are in charge of registering practitioners, for instance. But that, that as you point out, that, that doesn't occur in the, in the data world. The differences in professionalisation are really stark here. So in a medical context, there is very strong professionalisation that includes, you know, registration of practitioners. And there are these oversight governing bodies that can revoke someone's right to practice. And we don't have that same professionalization in the context of data science, in part because there is just a very wide range of different kinds of people in different kinds of roles who might act on or collect or be in some way using personal data. And so you don't have that same kind of governing body that could revoke someone's right to practice. And so given that, it's kind of hard to see what the costs would be of breaking an oath because there's not that same professionalization and governance. And there's also not the same external regulation either through legal and legislative systems. It is developing. We're starting to see better laws around data and privacy, for example, but they're not nearly as rigorous as laws around medical malpractice, for example. So it's hard to see what the cost would be of breaking an oath So the oath becomes a kind of soft form of self-regulation. And we have seen historically that big tech companies in particular don't really take on these kinds of soft self-regulation processes very authentically or, or they don't make a meaningful change. As you said right at the beginning, you're not saying this is a completely bad idea. And in fairness to Hannah Fry, I mean, she did say she didn't see this idea of a Hippocratic oath for data scientists as being a silver bullet. From your experience, from your research, what should go around this idea? What could be put forward with this idea to try and at least address some of the issues that society has with data at the moment and its misuse? That's incredibly right. A lot of the people who are proposing these kinds of Hippocratic Oath type models often note that they need to be one part of a larger kind of cultural shift in the sector towards a better understanding of responsibility and harms. And I think that an oath can contribute to that. The fact that we are having this conversation, the fact that, you know, there have been these broader conversations around it are important contributors to that kind of cultural change. But I think we also need to recognise that that change is already happening within these companies. We've seen lots of examples of employees engaging in internal activism within these companies and trying to resist practices that they see as unethical. We also see those people encountering really substantial barriers in their ability to make a difference. We see it's not uncommon for us to see whistleblowers coming out of companies like Facebook and saying, I tried to make a change. And then I realized the only way to make a change is by telling my story publicly and trying to put 
public pressure on these companies. So there needs to be, yes, cultural change and bottom-up growth in the way that data science practitioners and technologists view their social responsibilities, but there also needs to be regulation that makes these companies take seriously those kinds of obligations that they have. And given the amount of data that's generated, the amount of data that's used by almost every facet of society these days, I mean, this is a really big problem to deal with, isn't it? Yeah, the kind of scale of it is mind-boggling. I mean, and I think that's another important difference if we think about a medical model too, right? In a medical situation, I know my doctor, I know the person who is practicing medicine on me. If I think about that in the context of my data, there would be hundreds maybe thousands of people who have interacted with my personal data in various kinds of ways. And so how do we then build accountability into those systems which are being enacted on such a vast scale? Dr. Kate Mannell from Deakin University, thank you very much for joining us on Future Tense. My pleasure. And that's the show for today. My thanks to producer Edwina Stott and also to Aaron Davis for his Twitter suggestion earlier. And if you want to get in touch with us, remember you can email through the Future Tense website or indeed send us a tweet. I'm Anthony J. Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.